the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Flies when you're having fun. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Thursday, April 27th edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts with you. And uh, we're going to do what we try to do each and every day. Give you some insights and thoughts to, uh, to think about as we address issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. On today's program, always a privilege and an honor to have join us constitutional lawyer, educator, best-selling author, Mr. Joe Murray. Joe, how are you? Greg, it's been a what a week, right? Boy, I tell you, yeah, no, no lack of news uh, this week, that's for sure. Well, I will tell you this, Craig, I hope you don't mind, but I have a couple of note cards. I need to keep it questions I'll be able to answer them. So, <laughs> I don't know if you heard that story yet or not. No, no, I haven't, but we've got plenty of time, so I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, okay. So I guess as we launch today's program, let, let's get a couple of quick things out of the way. Uh, the, the good news is I'm here for another day. Uh, that's something that uh, neither Don Lemon nor yeah. <laughs> nor Sean, actually not Sean, I'm sorry, uh, Tucker Carlson can say. Well, what do you make of those two very high-profile changes in the cable news landscape over the last week? Well, Don Lemon, I think, is, is completely completely foreseeable. Uh, he had been making so many major missteps. I mean, we're not talking about one misstep or two. He he had kind of kept stepping in it, and he wouldn't wipe it off the shoe. So that makes sense. Uh, I will tell you, I was stunned on the Tucker Carlson one, uh, because I mean, really, it was, if I'm Sean Hannity tonight, I'm, I'm really worried <laughs> what's going to happen to me. Because Tucker, yes, he was a vocal critic, critic of Dominion. Yes, he, he kept pounding that drum uh, but nothing he said was outside the scope of what a journalist would do uh, or there was nothing unethical or there was nothing wrong with it uh, we still don't know all the answers to the questions obviously because as we talked the last time we were on the on the radio uh, by not going to trial we don't get to dissect Dominion and all their all their technology so uh, you know something tells me that there's an there's something going on at Fox and I and I started to see the programming, the the way it's been changing, not not the opinion people, but the news aspect. If you see what type of news that they're doing, they are starting to slant away from, I don't want to say the Trump, but away from the more populist conservative, and they're moving back towards more of the main establishment conservative. So if that's where they're going, then, yep, they had to get rid of Tucker. But it, it, like I said, it stuns me because, you know, people are canceling their Fox Nation membership now. They had to understand that they were going to get a big pinch in the wallet, but I guess they, they would rather see Tucker gone and hope that in a few months people will forget about it and come back, but 
You, you know what know makes me it. curious about all of this, and of course there there are details and nuances that we will never be privy to. So it's 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 just pure speculation, and we won't linger on this very long because all yeah. we're doing is speculating. But but I have to wonder um, the the Dominion lawsuit dropped, and in very short order, Lou Dobbs disappeared off of Fox. Now the Smartmatic lawsuit is still in the wings. Fox is not out of the woods by a long shot yet. And literally within less than a week after the Dominion settlement, again, with Smartmatic still in the offing, all of a sudden Tucker Carlson is gone. Is there any sense that these are sort of, how should we say, the the canary in the mine, the sacrificial lamb, in order to somehow uh, satisfy the the, hunger? of either of these uh, two voting machine organizations? Uh, but, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, you know, for the Dominion, to me, if I'm thinking if I wanted to try to maybe lessen the price tag and, and, and uh, a settlement, I would have fired Tucker, Tucker before I settled the case. Uh, it makes no sense to me to fire him after unless they made that part of the agreement part that they're not disclosing that Fox had to fire him. Uh, that's the only thing that makes sense to me because I can see, I thought it would, I think it would be very weak knee if Fox would say, look, if we fire Tucker and issue an apology and, and do all this stuff, will you make this thing go away? But no, they, they pay this pretty, and you know, we talked about it last time, even though it sounds like it's a lot of money in the grand scheme of things for Fox, it's not a huge dent. But you're going you're gonna to announce that this t- settlement was made. It's a huge settlement in the eyes of the public. And then days afterwards, you fire Tucker. It, it makes zero sense to me, other than the fact that I think they are using this case as cover to make a decision that they probably wanted to do prior, but didn't have the ability to do so. And I think, I think the lawsuit and the settlement was just a, a cover to get rid of him because they did not like the style of reporting in the sense that he was being more of the populist conservative than more of the, the Wall Street conservative. Or is it thin-skinned ownership and leadership at the executive office um, where the disclosure of many of these internal emails and text messages seem to suggest that uh, Mr. Carlson held his employer in less than than highest esteem. I mean, you know, I, I know that sounds terribly petty, but you've got a 92-year-old billionaire at the helm of all of this, and, you know, I, I suppose there could be a degree of, you know, uh, honor me or you're going to find yourself looking for work. Do you think that's possible? I do, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, that 90-year-old man has made a lot of money, and I think people who make a lot of money usually don't really have that thin of a skin. And at the end of the day, if you are making a lot of money and Tucker is a vehicle for making a lot of money, yeah, you'll probably put up with some of that stuff and laugh it off because he's giving you money to take to the bank. This smacks to me more of an ideological, not a not a personal, because mm-hmm. people that run business run business. And even if Tucker is kind of talking smack, he's, he's pulling in the dough. He's bringing in the revenue. He's bringing in the viewers. He's bringing in the eyes. Um, you know, again, it could be because every now and then people do act out of anger and, and emotion. But to me, I, I'm just thinking it smacks more of an ideological term than it is a uh, personal one. But, but, you know, interesting point on that. And again, I don't want to belabor this too much, yeah. but but I, I have to wonder, though, at the end of the day, and you use the term, which I think uh, very accurately describes all of this, you know, the, there there's oftentimes 
a sense of altruism that is attributed to we're in the news business. We're here to inform, to inform people, and they and we we kind of get very very lofty. But at the end of the day, uh, companies that are publicly traded companies, companies that are here to make money, which I assume uh, Fox is on that list, uh, I would imagine would put money before some of the, the lofty ideals. Now, I know that runs contrary into what we would like to think, but, you know, look at the behavior of Disney. And I think many of us can conclude, yeah, clearly we're trying to keep the stockholders happy first and foremost. Uh, so I, I have to wonder or, or maybe kind of challenge the notion uh, of, of this somehow being based on some firmly held position or belief um, as opposed to maybe he wasn't bringing in the dollars uh, as he once did. And, and certainly some national advertisers kind of eschewed some of the, the controversial topics that he would approach and the positions that Carlson would take on the program. I wonder if that perhaps is more at the core of this decision, that it's more about the money than anything else. And, and it could be. I mean, uh, you know, I have not checked the the uh, cable news ratings uh, at the latest, but I know for the longest time he was sitting atop that. And, you know, you know, you and I both know you need viewers in order to pay for advertisers. And the more viewers, the more you get from the advertisers. Uh, and, I, and I do think that we we kind of have a, a kind of a uh, kind of a what is it rose colored glasses eyes view of journalism. But I mean, you and I, I also both know if you go back to the days of even the USS Maine and, and, and yellow journalism, I mean, this happens all the time. And, you know, so while Tucker is is the latest thing, and that's what we're going to be talking about probably for the next few weeks, uh, it's going to go away, and there will be another Tucker that was Bill O'Reilly before that. Now, obviously, the situations were different uh, with Tucker and Bill because Bill had some allegations against him that were pretty serious. Tucker, obviously, at this point, did not. But it happens all the time. People who think that they're untouchable are touchable, and they go, and then they're replaced, and then eventually somebody fills their shoes, and that may or may not happen to them. So, yeah, it's business and everything else just keeps chugging along. If you've just joined us, our conversation today with constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, and educator Joe Murray. We're looking at some of the top stories of the week and their impact on your life. One of the stories that's um, undoubtedly going to be getting a lot of attention that we're going to um, sort of unwrap for you coming up in the next segment is the Supreme Court has now decided to accept a case that explores the question of free speech rights as it relates to social media. And in specific, do public figures and most notably politicians have a right to block citizens on their social media accounts if they don't like what the citizens are saying about their performance in their role as a public Servant. We'll talk about that. And real estate, real estate, real estate. They say it's always about location, location, location. But <laughs> and a couple of stories we'll share with you. It's a lot more than that. We'll talk more as our conversation with Joe Murray continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When Elon Musk purchased Twitter for what was it, 44 
billion, uh, certainly not a, a discount sale by any means. One of his claims was the feeling that it was important to preserve and maintain this critical open dialogue and this platform of exchange of ideas and so on and so forth. Well, at the end of the day, believe me, uh, the primary goal of Elon Musk, and I don't default him for this, but the primary goal is to make money. That said, what about the notion of social media, be it Facebook, Twitter at all, being a public forum? And if indeed public square, public forum, does a public servant, a politician, have the right to block you if you are commenting on their public Facebook page or Twitter page regarding issues of concern to the community or related to their performance in their public job. Well, the Supreme Court um, is going to consider whether or not the Constitution's First Amendment bars government officials from blocking their critics on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And Joe Murray, this is not the first time this came up. In fact, there was a case uh, back during the Trump administration when he began blocking critics to his Twitter account. It was at the very end of his presidency. So by the time this kind of made its way up through the courts, it became a moot point once he left office. But it does raise the broader question as to whether or not this is infringing on a citizen's First Amendment rights if a public official on a public account is blocking the public. Your thoughts? Well, you know, this is being hurt by the Supreme Court because we have what is called a circuit split. And out there in the West Coast, in your circuit, Craig, the Ninth Circuit, uh, it was arising from a school board case where we had school board members who a personal Facebook, or excuse me, Twitter account, and they would use that account to post information about the school and about what they were doing at the school. And they blocked people on that page and said, nope, sorry, this is our personal account. We can block you. It's not our public account. You have my public account over here. Well, the, uh, the Ninth Circuit said, yeah, no, nice try. The Ninth Circuit said you were using your personal account in order to communicate your official duties. And because you were doing that, you are no longer, you've now erased that divide and you have allowed your public duties to merge and kind of fuse with your per. You basically made your personal page public, and you are now allowed to violate the free speech rights. Now, the Sixth Circuit, uh, they had a more of a narrow view, and they said that only applies if the page owner's official duties are tied to that page or if the government duties require him or her to operate that page. This is a messy situation, Craig, and this is what I've always told people, especially that people who are public figures. If you have a social media account and you you begin to post official duties on your private social media account, you begin to blur a line. Because to me, the litmus test has always been, can the public think in your postings that you are not only speaking for yourself, but you're also speaking for your public employer? So if you have on your private page where you work, what your title is, if you start posting what you do at your job, your accomplishments at your job, your directives at your job, that to me, I agree, you know, and I know I'm going to be going to shock very many people, but I I agree with the Ninth Circuit on this one. Uh, The moment you voluntarily blur that line and you bring your public life into your private page, you've opened that door and you can't then decide to close it on the people you don't like. 
So if they wanted to maintain that sort of line between private life and public life, they should essentially, what, establish a separate page that is singularly dedicated to their job as a member of the school board, city council, whatever, and then it becomes open for whomever will, but then they would still maintain, if they had the two accounts, they mm-hmm. could then maintain a modicum of privacy to the point of even setting their other account, their personal account, private, yeah. to, to maintain that border, that line between the two then. Yeah, so if we have Mayor Craig over here, uh, and, and you have a Mayor Craig page where you post all your official duties as mayor, and then you have a private page where you're, you're posting your family vacation pictures, or you're, you're posting about even your own personal political views on national issues, on certain issues. Yeah, you have now created that, you know, we used to call it the, the Chinese wall in the law firm where you would separate the two. And, and, and you're right. At that point, you can't have a angry constituent come over. You have a picture of, you know, your family in Hawaii on the beach, basically calling you all these evil names because you voted to raise taxes or you, you voted to cut funding. Uh, then you would be able to block them because that page is not meant for that. That's your own personal use page. But what a lot of people do, and I get it, it's common sense. If you are, for example, the fella up in Michigan, he was posting. And I get what common sense says. Oh, I have a lot of people who follow me because I also happen to be city manager. So let me just post this stuff over here so it will get to the most people. But the law, I think the Supreme Court is going to say, that means you have now opened the door. So while it might make sense in terms of trying to spread the word, you now have used your official duties on your private page, and you've now merged the two, whether you meant to or not. So you've essentially opened up that door. Yes, and you can close it once you open it. And how do you think the court will see this? Do you think they're going to stand in in defense of First Amendment rights and and maybe suggest what we're talking about? Hey, if, if you want to maintain a modicum of privacy, maintain a private page, create a public page, and never the twain shall meet. Yeah, and I think that's where it boils down to. You're going to have to err on the side of the First Amendment here because there's an easy fix for this. If you don't want people commenting on your private page, make sure it is your private capacity, your individual capacity. You can't make something uh, a public page and then once people start criticizing, then say, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean to do that. Uh, because the, the fix is never merge the two. And if you don't merge two, you don't have an issue. So I think because the actual government actor is creating the issue, we have to side on the First Amendment, which is why I think the the Ninth Circuit got it right. And I think the Supreme Court, I think the justices uh, will also reaffirm what the Ninth Circuit uh, held and their legal reasoning. All right, we're going to turn a corner because if I introduce the next topic, we're going to run out of time. And this is going to be a hot one because everybody listening who owns real estate could potentially be impacted by this. Uh, There's a couple of stories here that are real eye-poppers. One is out of Minnesota, and uh, the other story is out of Georgia. But quite frankly, this could virtually happen anywhere. So if you are a real estate owner, stay tuned. You're really going to be set by, back on your heels on the next story. With us today is best-selling author, constitutional lawyer, and educator Joe Murray. His book, by the way, Take Back Education, available at bookstores around the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. We take a time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Get ready for this one. It's um, pretty frightening and quite frankly, scary story. This is out of Minneapolis. Geraldine Tyler, 94 years old, lost her one-bedroom condo in Minneapolis. Why? Well, because she had failed to pay her property taxes. And apparently this happened over a period of time. Now, when you get up in your 90s, things can slip away. Perhaps the bill doesn't come for some reason. There's an incorrect address on the bill, and it's just not front of mind for you. So in this case, because Geraldine had not paid her property taxes, almost $2,300, clearly she doesn't live in California, um, the, uh, the county in which she resides foreclosed on the home by selling it out from underneath her. They sold the condo for $40,000. And you would think, well, that's tragic, but, you know, at least Geraldine got $37,700 out of the deal. Maybe she can go and take the thirty-seven grand and go buy herself another place. Nope, you'd be wrong. Because, in fact, the county sold the house or the condo out from underneath Geraldine and said, yep, that's it. They sold it for $40,000, and they kept every penny. Now, Joe Murray, i got to believe this has to violate all kinds of certainly moral principles, but at minimum, I have to wonder what happens to um, illegal search and seizure, um, violation of the Fifth Amendment. I mean, this is frightening. It's bad enough if somebody at that age makes a mistake, doesn't pay their property taxes, and finds that suddenly their home has been sold out from underneath them to pay their obligation, but then to just say, yeah, we're going to keep the $37,700 for ourselves. Wow. Yeah, and and I don't know if you've already mentioned this, but this poor lady is in an assistant living facility, okay? So let's first be honest. She had ample times, and if she's 90 now, in 2010, uh, that was 13 years ago, she was younger. And and now when I say younger, we're talking about late 70s, early 80s. But there were ample opportunities for her to pay. We all agree with that. But what's going on here is not someone paying their due taxes. It's basically saying once we foreclose, and force you to sell, which the state or the city has the ability to do in order to get their property taxes, we are then going to pocket the proceeds. So if you have equity, so let's say you have a house for $100,000 and you owe $15,000 in taxes, but you have paid your mortgage down now to, let's say, $20,000, okay? That equity, so, you know, the state gets their $15,000, and then your mortgage company would get their $20,000. It's that equity, that remaining money that the state says, yeah, no, you don't get that either. Even though we're made whole, even though we have our back taxes and we are completely whole, we're not holding on to your equity. Thank you so much. Have a good day. And right again, that smacks of the Eighth Amendment violation against excessive fines. I mean, it it is extremely excessive because I think it was Justice Kagan on the bench. She asked a very great question. She says, what happens if you own a five million dollar house, but you only owe eight thousand dollars in taxes, property taxes? Can the state foreclose your five million dollar house, take its eight thousand dollars and then take the remaining four million plus dollars? 
it, it doesn't seem right, and it, it's really disgusting. And and to even make matters worse, I remember reading of a case up in Michigan where a man was just eight dollars and forty one cents under. That's how much he owed, and they sold his house, took his equity, and left him with nothing. It, this this practice is ripe with abuse, and there's really no logical explanation to it other than this is a power grab. It, it really does make taxation theft. You know, and it's also a convenient way for cities to close some budget gaps. I mean, let's face it, more often we're seeing counties and cities uh, closing gaps by things such as ridiculous parking fines. If you're, you know, 15 minutes over the parking limit on your meter on the street, you pay ridiculous rates, over-exaggerated traffic tickets, things of this sort. But, I mean, I I don't know what the the legal term is. Usury comes to mind here. I mean, you know, the taxes are due. A mistake was made. We all are obligated whether we're we're virile and 30 and failing to pay our taxes taxes or or in the case of Geraldine 94 and failing to pay taxes we're all under the same obligations but to then just turn around and decide to keep the remaining $37,000 and I've got to believe that if the woman if it was an oversight that's one thing if she genuinely didn't have enough money to pay her taxes in the first place to now essentially come in as the county and say and we're going to steal every nickel you own to penalize you for this wow that's pretty shocking well, that's it. Let's just say for a second that Geraldine was sitting up there going, I'm never going to pay my taxes, right? Even if that was the case, the remedy is to force the sale of the home, get the money you're owed, pay off her lender, and then whatever is left, it's hers. That is why we have ownership of property. That is why we invest in property. And, and think of the incentive, Craig, when you have a when you have a city that goes through a gentrification or you have an area, all of a sudden the property value skyrocket. Now you have incentive for like what happened in Michigan for these these tax officials to say, oh, who is only $10 behind on taxes? Who is really minimal on taxes? Because we're going to foreclose on that home and we're going to take that equity because it is now a boom town. It's, it is basically a tax lottery or a tax casino for the government that can go into these areas. And once the the things go well, can leave people homeless. Once property increases, their values increase, they can leave people homeless. It is not what the letter or the spirit of the law should be. We should all have to pay taxes because we need to make sure that we have roads and plumbing. And we all we know that from Civics 101. But this isn't about doing your civic duty. This is about an abuse of power. And I don't see how the Supreme Court allows this equity theft to continue. I just don't. Now, let me complicate this just a tad more, if I might. Uh HOAs, more and more Americans are living under them. We're finding cases where more planned communities are encouraging. Uh, I'm sorry, cities are encouraging planned communities under HOAs because it's a convenient way for them to shift things like infrastructure, road maintenance off of the city 
and into an HOA. So instead of the city being responsible for upkeep of, you know, tree-lined streets, the roads, the sidewalks, et cetera, et cetera, now that gets absorbed by an HOA. The, the building contractor, the developer doesn't care because he's going to pass that all along once the properties are sold anyway. And so more and more communities are, are coming under HOAs. It's not just the sort of traditional, you know, gated community or condominium um, uh, setting, but, you know, uh, entire developments. In fact, I read somewhere where 70% of all new construction in the United States for residential housing is now coming under HOAs. And they can serve some good purposes, but they can also, I'm sorry to say, serve some pretty evil purposes. Here's the case of a woman living in Atlanta. There was a billing dispute of some sort related to her HOA fees, and so apparently they didn't come to any resolution. She decided to make her point by not paying her HOA fees for a protracted period of time. That ended up tallying, after a season, over $2,700 with late fees. So eventually she um, sort of waved the white flag and paid what she owed with the late fees and penalties. Then, much to her shock and chagrin, she discovered that there along the line had been additional attorney's fees and uh, other penalties added, which meant she owed another $6,400 on top of the $2,700 she had already paid. And so in came the HOA after a period of time. And, you know, the old detail that Find what the big print giveth the small print <laughs> taketh away. Uh, the fine print in her homeowners association agreement gave the HOA the right to foreclose on the property for failed uh, for failure to pay fees, penalties, etc. So her home was foreclosed upon underneath her. Most shockingly, it was the HOA itself that bought the property for three dollars. And 24 cents. This over a dispute totaling just about nine grand. Now, again, we can argue hey, people weren't meeting their obligations, etc., etc. But, Joe, foreclosure and the HOA with a windfall. For $3.24, the story that I saw on television didn't indicate how much the home was worth. But regardless, there just seems to be something inherently evil that an HOA has that kind of power. You know, it, it, back in law school, we called that unconscionable, that, that the contract was unconscionable. But, but, and this is a huge but, unlike the government, which we don't contract with, the government is, is, is sort of, we work, they work for us, and, and they have certain responsibilities, and they have certain principles, albeit the Constitution, that they have to adhere by. At the end of the day, Craig, this is just a simple contracts case. And in this country, anybody has the ability to enter into a contract. They are not forced. See, we're forced to pay taxes. Uh, we don't have the ability to negotiate our tax rate. We can do it indirectly by by going to the ballot box, but it's not like every April fifteenth or when the property taxes are due that you know the tax man comes and says, "Hey, you know, do you really want to pay or how much? How about if I lower the rate to this? Will you give me this?" No, we have to. So that's why it's a little bit different than here. You don't have to buy a home with an HOA. You can decide not to. 
Or if you want to, if you really love that property, if you think it's the great property, you have to buy a home with an HOA and you have to read the contract. And that's what I have seen in, in my years, Craig, is that nobody reads the fine print. It's like you were saying, the devil is in the details. And and when this stuff happens, it sounds horrible. I think it personally is sickening. And I think that hopefully the HOA would have done the moral thing, which they're not legally obligated to do. At the end of the day, she agreed to this. This is what she signed when she bought the house. It's horrible, just despicable, and it's why whenever I see a house is associated with an HOA, I don't even look at it. Every time I have bought a house, every time I saw HOA fees, I just kept on moving. Because what people don't realize is that when you buy a house that is subject to an HOA, you truly never own that house because there are certain things that you have to abide by that takes away your freedom as a property owner. And that's great because I'm not gonna just go all poo-poo on HOAs. One of the biggest problems that we're seeing a lot in, in, in suburban areas now is that renters associate, renter companies are coming in and buying up houses and then they rent them out and it makes the values of the property go down. Now an HOA can put in that, in that contract that if you sell your house, you can't sell it to a company or a renter's company. But again, with every benefit, there's a cost, and the cost of an HOA is just what we saw in Georgia. You know, I, let's put a pause on that because I want to come back and ask you a couple of uh, questions here. If you've just joined us, we're talking today with constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, and educator Joe Murray. And uh, in this particular segment, looking at some of the overreaching power of HOAs, not only the ability of an HOA to come in and uh, dictate what color you paint your house, whether or not your grass is too tall, whether or not you can put a shed in the backyard, but if you get into a dispute... And you run afoul of the HOA, as Joe was suggesting, oftentimes the language within the agreement that you kind of agreed to when you bought to the house, even though you maybe didn't technically sign a separate piece of paper, nevertheless suggests that you have to play by their rules. And their rules are oftentimes not fair. Time out back with more as our conversation continues here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, from cities that foreclose on property because of unpaid property taxes, sell the property for a profit and then keep the profit for themselves, to HOAs that foreclose on a home and they themselves buy it for just $3.24. HOAs and uh, counties can be tricky when it comes to dealing with them and real estate. Joe Murray is with us today. He is a constitutional lawyer, educator, and best-selling author. His book, by the way, Take Back Education, available through Amazon.com. Joe, what's uh, you, you, you kind of suggested that the warning is uh, if you can avoid buying in an HOA, that's probably the best bet. But as I suggested, a growing number of homes and planned communities are coming under that HOA umbrella because, quite frankly, cities, municipalities are finding it's cheaper to shift a lot of that infrastructure maintenance to an HOA. So suddenly they're dealing with the upkeep of sewers, sidewalks, trees, roads, things of that sort. So it makes sense for the city, but as you suggest, doesn't always make sense for the homeowner. But speak, if you would, to those who are eavesdropping on our conversation today that are already in that place, meaning they own a condo, they own a home in an HOA. Maybe they've not run afoul of that HOA 
just quite yet. But when it comes to dealing with some of these issues, well, what's the best advice? How can people best protect themselves? Uh, A, make sure you read what you signed. Okay, make sure you have read that. A lot of people, you know, we've all been there when you get to the closing table and you're all excited. You got your dream home or your dream condo and, and, and emotions are great. And all of a sudden you get the stack of 500 sheets of paper that are put before you and sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. Um, you have to now dig that stuff out of your file cabinet and start reading it because and, and I want it to be this doomsday. Nine times out of ten, most people will never run afoul with the HOA and, and can live happily ever after. But, you know, the legal training has always trained you. You need to prepare for that one time out of ten where something is going to be dropped on your door. So I always would urge people, make sure you dust that, that agreement off and read what you signed. Read what you get and read what you have given up. Um, and like I said, HOAs are not all horrible. If you don't mind, uh, you know, having your individuality curtailed, an HOA is not horrible. I mean, they, they can help. They can provide services. They can keep the neighborhood in, in good standing. But again, the problem is it's kind of like the Stepford Wives thing. HOAs like everything to be the same, everything to be conformed. And, and they will enforce that at all costs. So that's just a very long-winded way of saying, Craig, read what you have given up, but also read give you rights. There are ways that you can can kind of protect yourself and protect your rights. But again, it's written by the HOA and usually those who write the contract will take the, the favors. So it's can, can this, though, get a little bit complicated in that there are sometimes cases where the HOA documents are not really provided until you go to contract? So meaning you've put yeah. an offer in, you're not privy to the details. You've seen the property. Maybe you've been fortunate to get a chance to read the termite report, things of that sort. Maybe a homeowner's inspection uh, report has been provided to you. But but are they necessarily obligated to provide you with the um, the rules and regulations of the HOA, the incorporation documents, uh, terms and conditions, uh, all of the doctrines and covenants related to the HOA before you put an offer down? Each state is different, but this is how I would usually, in a general speaking, tell people to deal with it. Uh, whoever your real estate broker is, if you're dealing with an HOA, request it first and foremost and say, look, I want a, I want a copy of this. And sometimes they will be secretive and say, nope, nope, we're not going to do it. Well, then you make it painstakingly clear. Then you better block a large chunk of your time for closing because we're not going to sign until we've had the opportunity to read every page. That usually gets people motivated because the people involved in closings don't want to sit there for three hours while you're reading the HOA agreement. So that that is the one tactic I would use is say, if you don't show it to me now, fine, that's your choice. But we're not signing until we have sat there and read every last word. And does it help to... And I know some people might feel awkward about this, but when you're looking to potentially make an offer on a piece of property that has an HOA behind it, is it of any value to maybe knock on a few doors, see if you can find a friendly neighbor or two that might kind of reveal what their experiences have been? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's no law about it. The worst thing that can happen to you is get a door slammed in your face. Uh, I mean, but, you know, anybody of us in politics that have gone making cold calls at houses, <laughs> we're used to that. Uh, but one of the things to it, as we seem to be going into a, a slower real estate market with interest rates rising, um, you have more leverage. So you have more ability to demand to see it because HOAs don't like property sitting vacant. Uh, and unfortunately, reading the economic tea leaves with interest rates continuing uh, to eke up and inflation going nowhere anytime soon, you're going to start to see people not able to afford certain things and you're going to see houses get more and more uh, vacant. And HOAs don't don't like vacant houses. Uh, it, it's bad for business and it, it doesn't it doesn't help run that that association. So you have a little bit more leverage in demanding at that point. You indicate that uh, this varies, of course, from state to state, municipality even to municipality. But when when you read stories like what happened with Geraldine Tyler, again, losing her home, maybe her life savings because she failed to pay her property taxes on time. And so the county stepped in, foreclosed upon her, sold the property and kept not only the, uh, what was it, $2,300 in unpaid yeah. property taxes, but all the proceeds on top of that. And uh, it, clearly that's that's going to be an interesting uh, decision coming out of the Supreme Court. H- how would you guess the high court is going to rule on something like that? You know, very rarely will I make a guess, but I do not see how how either uh, the um, how, how Minnesota wins this. I don't. Uh, it's it's so unconscionable. I mean, this is also this is more like windfall. Um, I would say in a contract, and that's where I was going to end with the HOAs. If it is completely unjust, I would say you could argue unconscionability. But what's going on with the state? You can clearly argue unconscionability for the state to be able to come in make itself whole take excessive amounts of money and leave people homeless it doesn't get more unconscionable than that so i would not be surprised if this is a nine zero decision at the supreme court wow and that's that's kind of on the rare side yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to be nine one eight one. I can't imagine who would want to be the dissenting judge uh, judge saying that the state can take not just what it's owed because everybody agrees the state can take what it's owed, but take upwards of millions uh, in, in profit from your from 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 a fifteen thousand dollar tax bill. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's ripe for abuses. It's, it's ripe for abuse, especially with what we're seeing on in our country today, uh, with how politicians are being indicted and all this stuff. As we get into this more partisan era of our history, imagine what's going to happen if your political enemies get in charge and they start trying to foreclose on your house now. We say, It sounds absurd. But look, I mean, who thought that, you know, when we first started talking back in 2008, Craig, that we would have talked about a sitting or a former president being indicted in New York. So anything is possible. Yeah. You know, they, we used to say, well, stranger things have happened. But, yeah, that, that, <laughs> yeah. that rule seems to be busting itself uh, time and time again. As to the case regarding the woman dealing with the HOA, is it really then coming down to a matter of buyer beware? I mean, it's it's similar in a sense that you hate to see anybody lose their home over something as foolish as unpaid, you know, minuscule unpaid property taxes, $2,300, my 
my goodness, I, I, unless you bought a house 500 years ago in California, I don't know where yeah. you pay property taxes <laughs> of that rate. But, you know, the, the notion that your life savings, and, and especially because these are older individuals trying to start all over again, is such an enormous, if not uh, impossible, challenge. Um, what's the ultimate word of caution on the HOA situation? Buyer beware? It has to be, you, you, no matter how, you know, I understand people sitting at a closing table might be, you know, because they're going to be pressured to to read something or read fast or to sign this. A trust. Look, when you're buying a home, you're putting almost your savings, your heart, you plan to be there for the next 30, 40 years, three hours. You know what? Don't lightness prevent you from knowing what you're getting into and don't let the fear that oh now that i've uh, we're here at the closing table we have no choice we have to take it because when you sign for an hoa it's it's basically like you have a roommate that you can't evict yeah so you've got to take it seriously and if it means that you have to wait and read and if it means that you need to get up and walk away from that table it does because that short-term pain will will go away but if you wait the other way it turns into a long-term pain that you can't get there's one dynamic here and we'll close on this that also complicates this and that is that hoa boards change and as they change you could get some wonderful people on there that are responsible that really want to do their best to uh, to care for the property and their best interests of their fellow homeowners since they are uh, also owners uh, within that development but you also get people that sometimes are on power plays. They've got nothing better to do. And so I'm going to be in charge of the HOA and I'm going to go around and make sure that nobody has a potted plant on their front porch that's any wider than, you know, 12 inches. Because if it's 13 inches, I think that's just, you know, beyond the pale. And we're going to we're going to give you a notice, remove it or we're going to find you. You get Mrs. Kravitz is who you get from Bewitched, if <laughs> yep. anybody remembers that. <laughs> yep, yep. You date yourself, Joe, and worse uh, yet, no. I get that reference, too. So, <laughs> hey, my friend, we always appreciate the time and the valuable insights, and particularly today, uh, drawing heavily upon your, your legal expertise. So, you know, at the end my of the pleasure. day, uh, buyer beware. Exactly. You know, and unfortunately... That is so much in life, is it not? <laughs> yes, this is, uh, this is very true, very true. Joe Murray, constitutional lawyer, reporter, best-selling author, and uh, again, his latest book, Take Back Education. We uh, talk about it every now and then here on the program. You can check him out online uh, at Amazon.com. There's Joe Murray, 6 o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.